Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large at Recode. You may know me as someone who said she would listen to your podcast, but really, I didn't. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm passing the microphone to Recode senior finance editor, Teddy Schliefer. He interviewed venture capitalist Samil Shah, the founder and general partner of Haystack. Take it away, Teddy. Thanks, Karen. I'm here today with Samil Shah, who is the founder of Haystack, which is a venture capital firm. And he's also a venture partner uh, at Lightspeed. We'll get into what exactly a venture partner is in a bit. But uh, Samil, welcome to Rico Decode. I'm excited to be in the red chair. Here you are in the red chair. How's your summer going? Summer's going great. I can't complain. I just need uh, an extra day a week. Extra day? Well, you can, you know, the land of innovation can invent an eighth day. Uh, You going on vacation anywhere or what's? No, we've got little kids, so our vacations are like two hours when they nap. Okay. And uh, we vowed not to go on a plane with them for a while. How old are they? <laughs> we have a daughter who is entering kindergarten next week. She's five and a half. Okay. And we've got twin boys who will be three in October. Okay. So that's you, th- you feel like that's still not the age where they can survive a I, long plane flight? I still have some travel PTSD from last summer. Okay. So I need to get over that. Got it. <laughs> well, um, I assume that, you know, this will be... It's, it's, it's a sleepy season here. I mean, I feel like people are still not totally... I mean, totally around, a lot of out-of-office replies. Oh, I yeah. was out for two weeks, which was, like, phenomenal and did not have to do much of anything. But I was still, you know, still kind of monitoring things, but I was amazed at, like, how little I missed. Yeah, there's not much going on, but there's a lot of private deal activity going on and a lot of people doing rounds and taking rounds off the table uh, when things are a little bit quieter. So there's quite a lot of activity. It's just not... It's beneath the surface. Yeah, beneath the surface. Got it. So we're going to talk a little bit about kind of who you are and, and, and what you do. And then at the end, we'll kind of talk more about where the industry is headed. Um, I think you're a really interesting person, um, as I've told you, because I feel like you almost approach venture capital as I do, as like almost a, a reporter, as a student. I don't think I've ever seen anybody before. I, I remember I once saw one of your blog posts or somewhere that you wrote, like you were curious about like some exit prices that had not yet been announced publicly, which is obviously something that like... I would do in my business. Um, and I feel like you're, you're just very observant about, you know, various firms, both on, at an inside baseball level, but um, and we, we can talk about this a little bit, but you're not, you didn't start here as an insider. You didn't, you're not the son of someone who kind of was in the business. You didn't grow up, you know, as an associate, as an analyst, as an associate, which I think kind of gives you a bit more of an outsider eye on the way the industry shape, is shaped. So let me just, you know, kind of start with like describing kind of how you got involved in Silicon Valley. You moved here. What? <clears throat> yeah, I, moved, I lived in the Bay Area 
in, in San Francisco up until about 2006, went to grad school on the East Coast and thought I would move to Asia and then decided that was a whole different saga, that I didn't mm -hmm. want to move to Asia or settle on the East Coast. I'd gotten married. <clears throat> so my wife and I wanted to come back. And so we, uh, she had a role at Stanford. We moved to Palo Alto. You know, I knew a few people in the area, but not, not really. Right. Um, and just try to get involved with startups or on the investor side. How old were you at this time? How old was I? Probably 32, 33. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so you were, you were, you know, the age of a lot of kind of VCs who were already at established firms. Like, oh, sure. Yeah. 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 And, um, I was actually m more interested in working at startups, but I was trying to just increase the surface area of what to do. Um, and that was a pretty, pretty rough time. Like I was lucky that some of the folks that I was in Boston that I was consulting with kind of bridged me to move here and I was still working with them for income. Yep. But I spent a good, I think I did a calendar audit, like 11 months just trying to crack in, uh, trying to work at any sort of startup. They could have been seed funded. They could have been growth stage. And I think I brought good entrepreneurial energy. I just wasn't like slotting into a role. Yeah. And then I would, you know, in parallel also talk to all sorts of investors, you know, like $40 million funds up to like billion dollar funds to just see if I could get a role. And that went nowhere either. So that was a pretty rough 11 month period. And ultimately I ended up working at a friend's company where I just said, hey, I'm going to show up and start working with you guys. I was like that frustrated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think they paid me in like Diet Cokes and sandwiches. Right. But that was it. And this was like a pretty concerted effort to like, you said, hey, I'm here in Silicon Valley. I want to break in. I mean, a lot, a lot of like a lot of origin stories here are like, you know, they just happened to meet someone at a party. And, and so it was almost like an accidental rise. But for you, this was like, hey, I want to work at startups or in venture capital. I'm going to find opportunities actively and network actively. And it was... Yeah, I mean, I was meeting a lot of people. Um, I was definitely I was definitely being called in for interviews and getting far in certain processes. Um, got to meet a lot of VCs through that process. I was also writing a lot online. Right. Um, you can actually write. I'm like... <clears> well, what of, happened was... A lot was of venture I, capitalists who have ghostwriters or, or folks <laughs> helping them. Yeah, you know, it, it just sort of happened naturally, but... I um, have always liked writing and did a lot of writing in, in roles before graduate school and during graduate school. And I never thought of myself as a writer, but yeah. it was just something I do to like express myself and it's sort of like a cathartic thing. Um, but what ended up happening was I lived like four blocks. You know, my wife was working at Stanford, so we, we lived in downtown Palo Alto. So she, she could walk into campus. Yep. And I ended up living like four blocks from Cora. And during that time, Cora was in beta mode. And it was like one of the, it was a very hot venture capital deal. It was much talked about, like you couldn't be on the site. They were trying to get like really big names on the site to contribute firsthand knowledge. And so I got an invite to join Quora. From, um, I had from met, a neighbor or someone or? Yeah. Yeah. And I just started writing on there and I just started noticing that like people were picking it up. And then Eric Schoenfeld, Arrington, MG at, at uh, TechCrunch were like, hey, we like your writing. Do you want to just guest post here a couple times? So I guest post a few times there. I did like this triple part thing on Quora because I was like, hey, I think Quora is an interesting yeah. thing. I think my first post was about Twitter and I just like the products. And so a couple of them just took off and they were like, hey, why don't you just keep doing it? So long story short, I ultimately started getting roles at startups. And while I was doing that, I was on the side just for fun ended up being probably the most frequent outside contributor to TechCrunch. And I think a lot of people probably read something I've written right. 
um, o- over the years, and I was just very consistent about it. Right. Yeah. So during that first year, I mean, when you're trying to get you know intros to the right firms, like I mean, you're pretty you're pretty candid about the struggle you had to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, did, did you feel like when you think back on that, that was like a fair struggle that it was like it should like do you think it should be hard to break into this business yeah. into venture capital well, or was it did you feel it was like like to what extent do you feel like it was a meritocratic gotta make it work and if you can you can if you can and you, um, you've won i think venture um and we, we can touch more on this uh later too if you want looking back on it i don't blame any of the vc firms for not hiring me it's really you really have to have context about what you're going to do before you come in, uh, you have to have a point of view. Um, usually that point of view is shaped by participating in the ecosystem before. Yeah. I mean, there are other things you could do in academia and, and things. Um, and it is a trust and relationship game, just picking off someone off the street and and having them come into your investment partner meetings and stuff. So, so having worked with these firms in various capacities over the years and now knowing what I know, it was completely the right thing to do. What surprised me more was um, startups that would just not um, entertain um, me as a hire, and then I kind of look at their trajectory. <laughs> Some you shot know. and fried, maybe. Not really, but yeah. just it was just sort of surprising to me. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just like. I mean, I feel like obviously this Silicon Valley is so connection based, and I just always wonder, like, you know, I think the, the downside is is what if it's not as meritocratic as it could be, and you know, if you're if you're a great schmoozer but a terrible VC, you can still make it here. I don't uh, know. There are two separate things. There's kind of schmoozing and being known and being kind of a gadfly. Yeah. And like, yeah, you can kind of get away with stuff and move around. But like VC firms aren't stupid either. Like you're, they're not just going to go after some gadfly. There has to be a there there. Right. There has to be like, you know, for writing, for example, someone may say, well, like, well, well how do you write and get in? Oh, you're just writing and getting into deals. Well, the founders aren't going to work with you unless you actually work with them. So it kind of works up until a point, but you have to deliver in real life. Right. So at this point, so you, you've been looking around for a year. Um, you know, you, you've been you know, pretty candid about the failure, about kind of the failure to, to achieve, a, a, you know, a, you don't walk into Sequoia. Is there like a big break you feel like you had? Like, in, and when you showed up here, you know, you're, you've obviously been putting in the spade work to try and find the right gig. Are, um, is, there, is there a I moment think, that jumps out at you? Um, there, there was one moment. I think I had finished two funds. So we, we glossed over a thing. So like I had a couple, I was competing for like this last role I was like gunning for. I was a finalist, very well-known firm. I have a lot of friends there. They were very gracious. They were like, you lost out to someone with way more experience. And yep. That was kind of a rock bottom moment. And so I had two friends kind of pick me up and they were like, hey, look, just start the small fund. It'll be your kind of ticket to go do your next thing. Show me of deal flow. This is Haystack. Yeah. So I kind of just started that not knowing what I was getting into. And the first two funds just hit a number of companies, like very, very lucky. And probably three years into that, a bunch of people, because I knew a lot of VCs, like I I got a tremendous amount of offers. Um, And so I think there was like the first time, um, this was like mid-2015. Yeah. Where I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I, I didn't take it as like, I've arrived. I would never say that. Um, but it was like, it did feel like a little bit of a turning point of like, okay, there are a bunch of people who are like, okay, come over now. Right. Yeah. So the move you essentially made was, I'm going to do my own shop, right? I mean, that was kind of the move that allowed you to say, hey, what, I, I don't need to be hired by these, well, these firms. 
I don't know if I would say that either. Okay. I mean, it was definitely something I entertained. We had one kid at the time. My wife was pregnant with twins at the time. So I was like, oh, right. You know, and we don't have our own net worth or liquidity or stuff. So I did entertain one of those offers. And then I had three other firms to their credit kind of intercept those offers and offer me like a hybrid role. They were like, you keep doing what you're doing. We'll invest in your funds. Be a venture partner with us. Hang out and keep doing your own fund until like, you know, you, you've taken off and you've, you've got this like, even if it's a one to five percent chance to have your own operation, yeah, you should do it like even if you have to crash land. And if you crash land, you'll have a role somewhere. So I ended up um, taking a role with GGV Capital. Right. Um, they were about four billion in assets now, about twenty years old. Uh, four billion under management uh, across China and the U.S. And that was just an amazing experience. Um, and I give them a lot of credit for kind of creating that role. And yeah. I don't think anyone else in the valley kind of has that role. Right. So I'm very fortunate. Right. We'll talk about that. I'll talk about kind of what what that means to do uh, be a venture partner sec. But like, just kind of more, more generally, I mean. There's a lot of talking here about about in Silicon Valley about failing up, right? And like, you know, you can you can fail and still be successful, and you everyone learns from failures. People here are skittish though to kind of talk about like, you know, ex, you know, applying for jobs and not getting them. From a brand perspective, as like a VC, like, do you understand kind of why people are like, just want to talk about the good stuff here? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are a lot of layers to unpack with that, but yeah. I think the re, what it comes down to is people don't want to hear it. They don't want listeners to hear. Listeners don't want to hear. Um, I think listeners do, but yeah. like, let's say the LPs and funds, yeah. or the founders who are going to those funds, sure. the employees who are employed by the companies that are fueled by venture capitalists. They don't. They don't want to hear necessarily how some of it works. Right. And so there's a little game to play around that. Right. Cool. Samil got a few more questions for you, but first we're going to take a quick break so Kara Swisher can tell the listeners about our sponsors. Kara. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Thanks, Kara. We're back here with Samil Shah, the founder of Haystack and a venture partner at Lightspeed. I want to talk a little bit about kind of, you know, there's there's a lot of misconceptions about kind of what venture capital is. I feel like, you know, people watch movies or they, they read books or they watch Shark Tank and they just think that this is how, you know, people just run around all day. Barking orders, making money, it seems just to be the good life. But from getting to know people, there's obviously a ton of grinding that goes into the business. And uh, it, lots of days isn't easy. And we're just talking about a failure. And there are tons of venture capitalists who never see any success or never see 
what's called carry or, you know, the profit basically. And people don't hear about them. So I want to talk, I want to talk a little bit about just kind of what it means to what you actually do all day on a day to day level. So a lot of questions in there and this is one of my favorite topics, but I don't, I don't definitely want to come off as someone like here, let me tell you all about how VC works. Like I'm kind of five years in uh, very much a student of it and I've been lucky to see a lot of it up front. Um, and no one's going to or should be crying on the half of VCs because when they raise a fund, they have guaranteed contractual income. Right, right. Right. So so it is Not hard. Not paycheck to paycheck here. Yeah, it is hard. Um, but for these larger funds, I think what's happening is that, like, I think of things are like, okay, let's just put things into a this cauldron. And so what, what are we going to put? We're going to put the, the culture around the social network movie and Facebook rising, uh, Shark Tank culture, you know million hundreds of millions of people in the country watching Shark Tank and understanding what the role of the investor in that big seat is. Yep. Uh, and then things like HBO Silicon Valley, uh, proliferation of things like YC. And so people have this picture of what a VC is and does. And I think what's happening at the same time and the reason that the monolithic definition doesn't apply is that VC is also growing and mutating as startup formation is growing and mutating. And so you have small funds, you have crypto funds, you have sector-focused funds, you have right. geography-focused funds, you have you know hundreds of funds under a hundred million bucks. You have now ten to twenty, thirty funds over a billion dollars, and so it's just really different depending on where you sit. Right. Um, so walk me through a typical day. Like what? What do you? Um, you know, I think there's this, yeah. The conception out there is that the venture capitalist is sort of the captain of the ship, and they're running around and giving money and fulfilling dreams but like what's like the there there is you know that is a big component of the job is like finding people that you're attracted to that you believe in right that you want to but i think the image is that like yeah. the vc holds all the all the cards right and lots of times obviously not a hot oh, no. deal no like yeah no so so let me answer this a couple of ways and we can we can click on anything you like so Every Monday, I try to be really structured now. So every Monday, I go down the Sand Hill Road. I spend the day at Lightspeed where I'm a venture partner. Yep. It's an amazing experience. You know, after three years doing that with GGV, and I get to do that with Lightspeed, you know, top tier firms um, at the top of their game. Just an amazing experience. And I'm learning every Monday I go down there. Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm in San Francisco trying to meet the next great founder, trying to help a founder that I've already backed, um, helping people in the community. You know, there's a lot of that. So it's a lot of coffee meetings that you have a 1 PM, a 2 PM, a 3 PM. I don't, I don't do it like that. Um, I try to just do a few each day and make them longer. Um, I did that for years, but it just, I'm just, I'm always amazed when I talk to VCs, just like if they ever show me like what their Google calendar looks like, it's just like, it's kind of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Like how do you have time to deal with any crisis du jour? (laughs) On Fridays, I just stay in my home office. I don't take um, I don't make any meeting plans or call plans. And um, part of that is just to like build some quiet into my schedule. And I also feel like the job that I have at hand is to actually, because uh, I think a lot of VCs overweight and overmarket how much they help. Yep. Right. And so I'm, I, I tell people very openly, like I'm trying to find people who don't need a lot of help and I'm trying to attract them to me, explain to them how I work with them. And then, they can pull from me. Right, right. And so because that selection is such an important piece of of what I try to do, and it's so noisy and you meet a lot of people, I find that I need to bake in parts of my schedule where my mind can actually rest and my subconscious can kind of kick in and I can say, well, hey, I'm still thinking about that person. I'm still thinking about that product and service. 
And if I catch my brain at rest, starting to think more about it, I start to get excited. So this is, most of this is your Friday time. Yeah, Friday and weekend. And it's just kind of baking that into the schedule to like just think about the commitment more. There's also some times where I meet somebody and I commit within a day or hours. Sure. And, and so I just I try to be as instinctive as possible right. in those situations. So you're pretty intentional about time management. You think, you think to yourself like, yeah, I mean, lots have, of people, I mean, lots of VCs, it's just like, you know, or for instance, my job is just like dealing with incoming, right? And like, it's the number one thing VCs privately, I feel, discuss is like hacks around time management, how to better manage their time. Yeah. And it becomes tougher once you're part of a large partnership because you get pulled into other things, sure. you get pulled into administrative things. But I'm, you know, when you have three little kids, you're, you're running these funds. I have this kind of dual role. I have to be just like completely vigilant over my time. Right. Yeah. Right. So your venture partner, Lightspeed, used to be a venture partner, GGV. The title has always, you know, seemed to me like it seems like a, like a part-time, you know, gig. But I, I do think that obviously there's a lot of confusion around what titles really mean here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. There's, um, a, there's a good Quora thread mm-hmm. about like what is a venture partner. Yeah. And I think when that thread was written there were like kind of one or two um, things. It's like somebody who's like trying out venture and it's like kind of an entry step in. And so you'll see a lot of GPs on Sand Hill Road that would actually start as a venture partner. Right. And I actually think it's pretty smart. Um, there are other people who, you know, maybe coming in and they just want to do a couple deals in a couple areas, but they don't want to be fully baked into the partnership. Yep. I think for me, the way it started with GGV and now with Lightspeed is that... Um, What's happened in the world of venture is like a lot of these larger funds have scaled. They've, they've now hitting like global opportunities. And so they become multi-strategy. And I'm, I guess, probably situated in a unique way where I'm a single GP that's invested in a lot of companies that have scaled up and been followed by the big VCs. Yep. And that have gone on to like, you know, do hundred like multiple hundred, $100 million revenue businesses. And so I think... Because it was normalized while I was working at GGB, other firms are more open to those structures. Hmm. And so the venture partner is a way to like because you, cause recognize you, you feel like there's a lot, this is a more common thing today than it was when you, start, when you signed up at GGB. I think more firms would do it yeah. now based on the fact that I, I was been able to do it. Right. I think the question is, who do you do it with? Right. And so they're, they're supply constrained. So what does someone, someone who's a general partner at Lightspeed do that you don't? I mean, what's the... Oh, yeah. So, like, I'm I'm trying to invest in companies that are pre-Series A. The round sizes are, like, two million, yeah. two and a half million or less. Yeah. That's the stage I like. Right. That's the stage where I think I can add value, um, where, I, where I feel comfortable with selection. Some of my partners at Lightspeed, for example, you know, they might write an $8 million check into sure. one company and make a reserve commitment... Or, or might write a $25 million check into a company and be the second board member. Right. And I think the, the level of commitment that that check brings versus what you do at Seed is just completely different. Yeah. No, but in terms of like at light speed, right? I mean, so obviously you're there on Mondays. Yeah. Um, if there's a decision on Wednesday, is, is part of the challenge being only a venture way, partner to like make sure you have you know, every firm has its access. own yeah. Every firm has its own investment decision process. Some of the firms are advocacy models. Some of the ver- firms are consensus. Some of them are voting. Yeah, this is, this is how firms make decisions about which companies to fund. The way I see Lightspeed going um, is people form deal teams. And if there's a deal kind of moving, there's a team kind of forming, and then they bring it to the partnership on Monday. They'll ask for a rating sometimes to get a calibration hmm. from the partnership. There'll be an active discussion. Um, 
really structured, active discussion, both around the opportunity, the market, and also testing the partner's own personal willingness and resolve to commit to the opportunity, Right. Um, which I find those really fascinating. Um, and then there's a vote. Right. Is that different than kind of the way that, so GGV, for folks who don't know, is is a, a firm that's well-known basically for being very active in China as well. I feel like yeah. they're probably the most, one of the t- two or three But also prominent. remember here, they did Series A or B and Open Door, HashiCorp, yep. Wish, yep. Um, some pretty major companies. How is, I mean, tonight you've seen two firms kind of up close. I mean, how is, how is GGV different just in terms of? Yeah, I think every firm, and I've been inside other partner meetings too, has their own flavor. GGV, yeah. they have a smaller partnership in terms of the MDs at the top. They're only five or six at a time. Right. And they tend to bring things uh, to the partnership and because the partners are distributed between U.S. and China, are kind of more having one-on-one conversations and then have they have a group weekly meeting every Monday night. And so they figure it out that way. Got but it. every firm's different. If you had people from different firms. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating here. Yeah. And, and so going back to your question, too, of like what folks would like, like to be during the week, it's very much an outbound field job. You know, it goes back to almost journalism, right? You're right. going out, hitting your beat, talking to people. Like there are a couple of people who focus on fintech or real estate or, you know, infrastructure. And they're going, working with their companies, talking to sources. Right. Yeah. Sure. No, I mean, I think a lot of the best... VCs kind of have a journalistic mindset. Yeah. Um, another misconception that I think is definitely not talked about sufficiently in VC is is the role of luck. You always see a medium post that eloquently describes how the company that was just acquired, you know, they had t- total forethought, forethought to how everything was going to unfold. Obviously, there are other examples of companies that fail that maybe the decision process was perfectly good and, you know, based on a rational, you know, they should have been rewarded for it rationally based on, but you know, like, do you agree that a lot of this is luck? I mean, I know that I know the, the, the follow-up obviously is like, if a lot of it is luck, should VCs be as venerated as they are? And I think it's what makes people uncomfortable. And I think that's why lots of VCs don't talk about luck. I think, I think to answer this requires some, some nuance and, and digging a little bit. I believe absolutely that luck is a major component of these things because all you need in your career is like one investment to just pop. Yeah. And it's, I think if you talk to people in private, it's very hard to know in the moments of early investment, like how that could even be possible. Sure. Especially if you're doing seed, right? You're, you're at the, there's the huge variable, there's a huge variance in kind of what can happen. Now where I would downplay luck is when you see people get lucky a lot because they have a lot of choices. And so they're selecting out of those choices and to select well out of those choices um, is pretty remarkable. Like if you look at, you know, just to pick on a few people, but like sure. you know, Matt Kohler's now been a benchmark for 10 years. If you look at the companies he's associated with it, dollars in valuation outcome just on an Excel sheet, it's yeah. pretty remarkable. Right. Um, is that luck? Each individual know. decision might be luck, right? I mean, yeah. but your, your argument is, you know, if you're hitting if you're hitting enough home runs, then yeah, because you would imagine everyone would want to work with Matt in right. some way on the consumer side, and so he's got all these choices. Right. Um, you know, if you think about like one of the co-founders of Lightspeed, Ravi Matra, I think in the last six quarters he's had a billion dollar plus platform enterprise outcome. Right. Is that luck? I you know I don't know. I I don't think so. Right. <laughs> Um, so I, I think there are, there are people who graduate into this level where um, they're both attracting more and more people. 
um, more and more quality opportunities. Right. And they're selecting very precisely amongst those opportunities. Are there investments that you've made where you kind of think back about like, you know, a great investment that, you know, you made that you should have been successful and then it's like unlucky and you like, it doesn't, it doesn't pan out. And like, I'm sure you think, I'm sure you think about, you do some self-reflection all the time, right? I know you do like charts where you look at, yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes it's not your fault, I'll, right? I'll give you, yeah. And, and the way I shortcut that at seed, which is very different than what like Ravi or, yeah. or Matt would do at a series A commitment is like I try to focus on partnering with a person or a set of people yeah. in a market knowing that things may change and that would I make the same decision to invest in this type of person again? And generally I feel like I get that right and I'm comfortable with that. Again, the dollars aren't as big. So I'll give you two examples. So one example where things didn't work out was um, a company called Lux Valet. Okay. So Lux had amazing like cohort retention numbers. They were making quite a bit of money. Describe they, what does the company do? Oh, sorry. Lux Valet was started in San Francisco, moved out to eight cities pretty quickly. You would um, tap in your location in the city. A valet would come and take your car and park it and then do other stuff to it and like fill it with gas, do a car wash, change the tires, fill up the tires yep. and give it back to you at the end of the day at a different location. So you didn't have to deal with garages and you didn't have, you could use Uber. Plus you got a clean car and yeah, right. Yeah. And just... A lot of people used it, not just in San Francisco. And what ended up happening is that the company wasn't able to, as hard as they tried, wasn't able to manage um, losing money on a unit economic basis with going deeper inside the wallet. Right. Now, the, the interesting thing about them is if you ever, anyone who ever used Lux Valet or if you search it on YouTube, all the valets arrived by scooter or skateboard. Okay. And so it was ahead like a of, year before, <laughs> you know, people doing scooters. But like, what if, what if at Lux, I mean, the, you could just do what ifs everywhere, right? Right. What if two months before they decided to sell the company, they were like, let's just turn into like a scooter share or something like that. Sure. Who knows? But I went into that investment having made a number of on-demand investments that had worked. I saw a lot of people using it. I thought parking was, you know, people spend in the U.S. like 40 to $50 billion a year. So I did all that analytical work. I knew the founders, but that didn't work out. Yeah. Versus like I was the only seed fund outside of True Ventures to invest in the seed round of HashiCorp. And I'll probably never make an investment like that again in my life. And I just met the kid through a friend who he worked with. Right. Thought he was brilliant. I spent like weeks getting to know him. So that's an example of luck working. Absolutely. Like there's no way you could see a multi-billion dollar company potential just like right. by meeting some 21-year-old kid. Right. So that gets me to, to another, I think, misconception or well, something just really irks me about the, about the way VC works, which is like, and, and you've, you've, we talked about this as you tried to break into VC, but it's still, it's still pretty clubby overall. I mean, I think the industry, like, you know, there's an in-group and you got to break in and it's not totally easy and you know if, if you know the right investor you meet the right company and like it's not it's not very very it's, it's hard maybe maybe for a reason but there is a club and there is an in-group and we we can talk about this a little bit later when we get into stuff about like diversity you know obviously the in-group isn't helpful to that do you feel like you know in your experience that running your own fund but kind of being attached to some existing big heavyweight funds like are there advantages to kind of being to being not part of the in-group and not being, you know, one of the 10 partners at one of the five biggest funds? What are the advantages of a lone wolf, I guess? I mean, I can only answer that for me, which is yeah. I've only been doing this five years and I've been lucky to have been 
around even before that and mentored and continually mentored by a number of VCs, um, very actively mentored. So I view it as a way to like get smarter. Um, I don't think I was selected for that because I'm cool. I don't think I'm an insider in that way. Like I have yeah. inside knowledge, but I don't have all the inside knowledge. And so I, I fundamentally believe like anyone can still come here. There are now all these programs like AngelList has an angel track. YC has like a investor school. First round capital has like all these things that bring people into investing. There's AngelList um, out there. So there are ways for someone who wants to get into venture to show um, that they're passionate about it, to show that they can structure their thoughts and share judgment. Yep. And people will listen to them. And so I, I still fundamentally believe that. You still think there's a, there, are, there are models of ways to break in. Absolutely. That are not. Um, yeah. I mean, some of it, some of it's obviously connection based, but like. It is a relationship thing. Like no one yeah. is going to just hire somebody off the street. Like the, what I tell people, like There's I have no, people, like, SAT I have BC. people coming <laughs> to me every week saying, how do I get into venture? And what's really ironic about this is I've helped a number of people get their venture capital roles even before I had anything going for myself. So right. I saw a lot of this up front. And the number one thing I tell people is come bearing gifts. So you go meet a VC, don't ask for a job. Yeah. Tell him or her the companies you're meeting that are interesting. Right. Give, right. give, then ask. Yeah. Yeah. Or like anyone that's gone to talk to, like think of how many resumes Sequoia gets. Sure. A firm like that, right? Right. A firm like Lightspeed. Everyone will just say, great to meet you. Like, let's start working on a deal together. Right. And what that means is like you have to bring something to the table. Right. Sure. That just is what it is. Okay. And the connection of the founder matters. So like you can't, you can't just say, well, these are five companies I think are interesting. And we got to wait five years to see how they are. It has to go deeper. It's like, well, I think this one's interesting because I spent time with this founding team and the two of them together are just amazing to work with. You got to come, come see it. Right. So, so not only does the knowledge matter, but like the access and judgment around who those people are and what they're doing matters. Um, yeah. There you are. We're going to take another quick break right now to hear from Kara Swisher. We'll be back in a minute with Samil Shah. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that, that Israel should be able to participate in Pro Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. 
Thanks, Kara. We're back with Samil Shah, who has a number of VC roles. I want to talk a little bit just at the end here about kind of the future of the business. Um, so you recently announced a deal in Seattle. Is that what it was? Yes. Okay. And I know you've done some thinking about kind of, de- not that Seattle is, you know, the hinterlands, but, you know, deals outside of the 50-mile radius of where we're sitting. Um, lots, of, lots of people here feel like some, or I think there's an increased conversation about like what are the moral obligations of VCs to do things outside of town? What are the economics of doing deals outside of town? Um, there are obviously some real challenges to you know a startup in Wisconsin succeeding. Are you bullish or bearish on kind of yeah, deals you, outside of here? You asked a couple of questions there. So just in general, I feel like people expect a lot of VCs and VCs should be more interactive and, and sort of sharing their knowledge and giving back to the extent that they can. Um, I definitely agree with that. I, but I, where, where I probably draw the line is like, I don't think they can just solve all those problems. Yeah. Right. There's a limit to what they can do. They're really bandwidth constrained. I looked in my own data over the last two years. Intentionally, I've been trying to invest outside the Bay Area, mainly because I'll meet somebody here in the Bay Area at Seed and think, wow, they're great but I don't know how they're going to build a team here and keep that team loyal. And so the bar for that is really high right now. I still invest in the Bay Area quite quite aggressively, but I go into that trying to mitigate that risk. Whereas on, when I meet teams outside the Bay Area, I found that they've already kind of spun out, like this team in Seattle downstream, Yep, they all came from Amazon. They're all really committed to this like, very narrow thing, specialty that they're working on in ads and product search for Amazon. And I think they're going to stick together. Um, and so I, I was very happy to make that investment. Yep. Now, depending on who you are and how much money you manage, you could have a very different view of what I'm saying. So when I looked at my own data, what I kind of concluded looking at, you know, Brad Feld recently wrote something about Foundry Group investments. Fred Wilson has been writing about where their geographies are. And you could argue at the 200 million per vehicle range, uh, Brad's group and Fred's group have just been lights out, right? I mean, they will go down to some of the best venture capital firms in history. They've done about a, th- a, thir- a quarter to a third in their home market, about half in the Bay Area, and then the rest is kind of sprinkled in different geographies. But what I've concluded in looking at their data, my data, and then like talking to other firms where I can't share the data. What I would tell a founder right now, right? If, the, if you were sitting yeah. here starting a company, I would say, if you're going to start in the Bay Area, great, you need to raise quite a bit of money and you need to know who you're going to hire and why and understanding like how much you're going to pay those people to stay and how much equity you're going to share. Now, if you say, hey, I don't want to play that game, where do I go? I would say you go to Seattle, LA, depending on what kind of company you want to build, Denver, potentially Austin, New York and Boston. Right. And I think after that, and this is the tough part, I think it's really hard. Right. So there, there are a ton of consumer Series A's happening in yep. LA, a ton of consumer and enterprise A's happening in New York, no problem. But if you want to go elsewhere, start the company, yes, there are going to be companies in Utah, there are going to be companies in Toronto. I've invested in all those areas. Um, it's just harder. Yeah. And, and the data shows that. Do you feel any kind of moral obligation to, you know, spread the wealth? Um, or, do you, or do you think to yourself, my job is to make money for my investors and to... I, yeah, I view it as I'm, I'm trying to invest in one of two outcomes. 
I'm trying to find a group, whether they're here or in Seattle, that with a little bit of seed funding, they're going to get on venture capital railroad tracks, and I'm going to help them do that. Or they're not going to raise like sort of the fuel of venture capital, and they might raise some strategic capital or follow on or local capital, and they might have a more modest but very healthy outcome. Yep. Those are the only two things I'm looking for. So I don't, I don't enter into those decisions thinking like, oh, it's the right thing to do or I'm, you know, I have some guilt that I'm bringing to it. Sure. I'm really trying to give the people I think are deserving of the edge and that have differentiated themselves. Like it's just not, this isn't a grant business. Right. Yeah, it's not. Um, who have differentiated themselves through their experience and their insight, a chance. Right. Another obviously topic that, you know, super important here and every firm has sort of reckoned with over the last years, just diversity initiatives. Um, we were talking a second ago about, uh, you know, the club. Um, it's mostly a white club. It's a male club. Um, yeah, this is a Richard Kirby has been writing a lot about it, a friend of mine. There you go. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like how bullish are you that, that it's changing? Um, there's obviously a debate about what motives are behind folks changing. Is it just for PR? Is it just for... I, I, mean, I would make two, two comments. One yeah. is that I think the larger firms that are investing on a national scale or global scale probably need, from a business point of view, need to have diverse points of view in their partnership discussions and investment discussions to make better decisions over the long arc of the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think there's just a business case for that. So it's just very easy to make that case. Yep. If it's two people doing a micro fund in Seattle, I don't know how critical that is, right? Um, the second thing I would say, which I would love to see more of and have helped people do it, is like the ability for people to start their new funds is amazing. So I think there's this whole bunch of people that want certain names to like tilt over or change. But I, I almost say back, like, that's great, and they should, and they have a, their business reason to. But, like, you know, like, let's say Benchmark formed in, what, 1996, 1997? Yeah, it's like 20 years. Six guys started it. They've been insanely successful. I don't see any reason why five or six women or five or six team of diverse people, even if there's a guy in there, white guy in there, can't go form the next Benchmark and just kind of make a statement. Right. I think the money is there. I think the appetite's there. I think the deal flow's there. So I, I'm looking forward to those types of things starting. Yeah. Do you worry just when you think look at a lot of white male, when you look at, when you look at the Silicon Valley investor base in general, um, this is something I've been thinking about, thinking about a bit, just like to what extent they're plugged into like the country overall. And I think this is, this is a way that's kind of bridging the two things we just talked about, which are, a, a lot of folks in Silicon Valley just investing in Silicon Valley. B, a lot of firms, a lot of white men. Those two things together, I think, can create you know a scenario in which it's a perfectly legitimate question to pose, like to what extent are investors in touch with reality? So there's a couple of questions there, and I, w I would say things are probably changing faster than, than you've seen. Uh -huh. um, I think if somebody's bread and butter is to invest in the enterprise or infrastructure or tech IT a lot of that's going to happen in New York. Yeah. Bay Area is going to be the lion's share of that. I think consumer, especially on a national or like global level, people are on a plane from here every week. Yeah. So like, you know, one of one of my 
partners at Lightspeed, uh, Nikki Quinn. I mean, she's on a plane every week, and now she's been doing some deals on the consumer side in L.A. and New York that aren't announced yet, but when they're announced, they're going to be, like, really interesting to watch. Right. Um, and she's just on a plane. Um, now, what I have been thinking, like, put, putting that aside, what I have been thinking about is San Francisco, to me, kind of feels like it's almost like a Hong Kong to China. It, it's, it's like it feels like a completely different country. Um, and I think there's some good from that where people here are just pushing the envelope. Like I was looking, I'm kind of a transit junkie. Um, and so I, I was noticing in the time that it was announced that the old bus depot was going to be um, decimated and then like torn down. Yeah. And before like ground was broken on the new Transbay terminal, Benchmark did the Series A and Uber. Right. And you could argue that was a very global net positive event. I think there are some dangers of like getting out of touch, but I do think at least on the consumer side, I'm seeing a lot of people, whether it's Nikki or, you know, Hans from GGV, they're on a plane every week. They're not investing a lot of consumer here. Right. They're going all over the place. They're going to where those companies are being built. Yeah. I also think that um, when I moved here and maybe up until that point, and this is one of my big concerns for the region, it, wa it was possible to move here. And now I just kind of think about like, what would it take to move here if I was 33 again? And I was like, oh. Economically, I mean. Yeah. And so like, will those next great people move here? Um, you know, and there's a variety of macro political <laughs> reasons. Um, there's cost reasons here. So I do worry about that. But, you know, to answer your question, in a way, I think it's important that the innovative, like the creators who come here from all over the world are divorced from reality a little bit because that gives them that creative license to go do that. But then we're also seeing some of the effects of like losing touch sure. with that. Now, what I would say in response to that is it's not a monolithic thing. There are plenty of people at all the major firms, especially on the consumer side, who, who mostly have portfolio companies outside the Bay Area. Yep. Two last things. Um, another obviously thing in the news is still still a lot of conversation about SoftBank. I think the interest has waned a little bit. They're the, are you a baseball fan? I am a baseball fan. I feel like it reminds me of that Reggie Jackson quote, like they're the straw that stirs the drink now in VC. Straw, <laughs> straw, I don't know if they'd see that as flattering, but maybe not. I think um, it's flattering. Yeah. I mean, do you, I, mean I, I think there was a lot of interest in them last year. Um, I'm still, oh, it's, we, we still write about them all the time. It's a topic yeah. of discussion amongst VCs sure. weekly. Sure. Um, do you still see them as, I mean, how would you rate them as uh, the, the role they're playing here? Generally positive, generally negative. I view it as it's a open market and there are no rules. And Masasan and his team have figured out a product to create for these multinational corporations and sovereign wealth funds in countries where the economies are shifting. Yeah and giving them a way to diversify. Um, how accretive that will be to those people is sort of an unknown. Um, I also do see them investing in two kinds of companies. Like it's kind of an 80-20. 80% is around where does the consumer live? How do they live? Where do they go work? How do they work? And how do they get around? If you look at a lot of those investments, like I'm actually... Um, probably can't share which ones, but like SoftBank has actually followed into a number of the 
companies I've seeded. So I've sure. I've kind of watched this develop over time. Um, if you look at they've done WAG, you know, they've done WeWork, they've done Uber, they've done DoorDash, right? This is like kind of getting into the consumer wall. Yeah, they like, they like a lot of marketplace companies. Yeah, and con- consumer focus, right? And so they're they're probably looking around the world as just saying like, you know, look at what's happening in Indonesia, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Asia, you're going to have this massive like consumption upgrade. Um, and these networks are like once in a time, once in a lifetime networks to own a piece of. I think you see 20% around AI and you could argue that, you know, even with our 2016 election, the ability to like use technologies like machine learning and AI are instruments of warfare, um, right? They're the arms that people deal in. So like SoftBank went to Carnegie Mellon and put almost $100 million in this company called Petum, right? They put, I mean, I don't know how much they paid for that English company arm, Yeah. right? And so... They're 20% of their, what, what I observe is they're playing that game. But it's unclear whether the LPs expect a return. It's a place to park their money. It's unclear what kind of return you can generate from that fund. What is clear is that if you do have a jewel in your portfolio and that's going to drive your RR as a VC and you're about to go public or thinking about going public and that founder or founding team gets intercepted by SoftBank and they can maybe raise triple the amount of money for a fraction of the cost and stay private and not go through that process. What does it do to your own IRR? Right. Yeah. I think that's the issue. Last thing, I mean, is there, is there uh, so we've talked about, you know, firms getting more diverse. We talked about late stage money. We've talked about um, whether or not we're seeing, you know, firms become more meritocratic. Is, is there is there one kind of uh, change you think that the VC industry will look like different in maybe 20 years we haven't talked about? Is there something? Is there a change you might hope to see in twenty years in the industry? Yeah, I think you'll see a lot. The early stage specialization will will stay, and so people who have built up networks in these industries, um, very in in niche topics, so in like, very niche topics, yeah. will stay. There's the sort of orthogonal attack by crypto. We don't know what that's going to turn into, but I I generally think like the best in breed firms, the firms that will like you know, have been around for a few decades and will continue to be around for a few decades are going to be kind of like this word you hear all the time. They're kind of like platforms, but they kind of have a global nature, like they're able to invest globally. They're probably managing in their vehicles a billion dollars or more. And they're multi-strategy, meaning like the way I call it is they have multiple bites at the apple. What they have to do first is pick the right company to invest in and the price and the ownership doesn't really matter. But once they start working with them and identifying that is is the right one, you really go in hard, right? And then it becomes a way you have to fight to get in, then you have to fight to build up your position, and then you have to fight against someone else coming and taking it. And so that's why a lot of the, I think a lot of those funds that'll be around in 20, 30 years are most durable will be multi-strategy. So you think that- that's Even including fund of funds like they'll have fund to fund like practices. These are, so you, these are funds that invest in other funds. Yeah, so you'll have the banner name of the fund. Yeah. You'll have a fund to funds practice to like funnel deal flow, find new GPs. You'll have your actual GPs running from seed to growth. And then you'll have like a way to invest in growth global opportunities. Mm-hmm. So you predict kind of fewer firms, maybe there are fewer, bigger, bigger monsters. I mean, or is it like in addition to kind of niche small guys who only invest in, you know, 
I think, Croy bottles or I think markers. you'll have, I think, I mean, it's hard to know, but I think you'll have the same number or potentially more of like larger megaphones. Yeah. Um, like you can imagine a firm like BlackRock um, having a shingle and investing across stage, just given how fundamental technology is. Yeah. To, you see Co2 doing this now, right? Co2 started as a public hedge fund. They built up a huge research arm. And then about seven years ago, they hired a buddy of mine, Kyle Doherty, built out their U.S. office, started doing growth investing. And now they hired another buddy of mine, Matt Mazio. Right. And now they're doing early. And so they're multi-strategy. Right. And really good at what they do. I mean, they invested at Snap at $2 billion. Sure. DD. Right. No, they... Um they they've done they've done pretty well, but they've also they've they've shown how you can like you know do everything from investing in the interesting academic question is stocks to these. is it better to start off as VC early, then grow into growth, and then have crossover capability, yep. or is it better to start over in public and work down? If you look at Co two, it worked pretty well for them. We'll have to wait and see if if the venture firms that are growing right can, can sustain it to that level. So basically you're saying that you're going to launch a public hedge fund eventually in, <laughs> that, in 10 years. That'll that be, is way above my decision. You'll gradually move from grade. seed no. to hedge fund. My, yeah, I try to keep things simple. Like my main thing, I end up getting attracted to the entrepreneur and like their story. It's kind of like mushy. Right. And then I just can't stop thinking about it. And then I'm just like, okay, they're off. You know, they raise like, you know, big round maybe a year or two later and then they got bigger problems in dealing with me. Right. There you go. Yeah. Okay, Samil, it was great having you. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Thanks. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, you can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks for editor Joel Robbie, our producer Eric Johnson. Kara Swisher will be back here on Monday. Tune in then. more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.